0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 436. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Dr. Margie Worrell. Margie has a PhD in the dynamics of power, gender, and leadership. She's passionate about helping people to live bigger, braver lives. Host of the Live Brave podcast, Margie's the author of five best selling books. You've Got This, Make Your Mark, Brave, Stop Playing Safe, and Find Your Courage. Margie's also an international speaker and member of the advisory board of Forbes School of Business and Technology. We discuss the importance of language, tackling the fear that holds us back, how fear shows up differently in different contexts, how to find your passion and purpose how to instill courage in people, including your own kids, and much more. A most important conversation. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Margie. Dr. Margie Worrell, what a pleasure to have you on. I I, I think I I basically I, I, I found out about you, I think through Twitter, and, and your profile, all the books you've written, the mission you're on, and, of course, the latest book you have just written, or rewritten, I should say, uh, made me feel like I had to have you on my show. Welcome on. How would you like to describe yourself, Margie?
1: Oh, I feel like I was a multi-hyphenate before that was a thing. <laughs> so, big sister of seven. Mama Four, that's pretty um central that's, to me. That's a
0: football team. Seven yeah. and four. You're uh,
1: yeah. Um, author, speaker, passionate advocate for women, um, Forbes columnist, podcaster myself, um, mountain climber, adventurer, lover of life, long lifelong learner. That's I, I I struggle sometimes to wrap it up quickly, but I think to just kind of encapsulate my passion is helping people live braver lives that make a bigger impact and uh, that's kind of what I'm all about.
0: It's brilliant because uh, uh, you and I are similar in age and and it's true that you kind of accumulate experiences and it gets a little bit more complicated to describe your life as you go on hopefully because yeah. you filled <laughs> it up right and, and yet as, as you just did you also described your mission if you will in the way you live your life which at some levels is the, is the synopsis, right? At least it's the synopsis of how you live your life.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Cause it, you know, you can, there's all the different hats that I wear, but what fuels me is just living a meaningful life that makes an impact. And in, in the way that, that draws on my own strengths, skills, talents, but also hard won wisdom and all the struggles I've had along the way. So so that's sort of what gets me out of bed and, you know, fuels my energy and, you know, makes me love life.
0: So in, in my second book, the first chapter was actually is all about technologies. But the first chapter uh, of this book, Future Proof, was uh, entitled Meaningfulness. And I kind of feel that that's what it's all about. So I would love to ask you, how you came to that mission? At what point in your life? And what was it that switched it on? Because I'm sure you weren't didn't come out of the womb with it.
1: No, not at all. I kind of look back now and I see decades in a sense. So, you know, my 10 years was all about fitting in and trying to be popular. My 20s was very much about spreading my wings and exploring the world. I'd grown up on a small dairy farm in rural Australia. And I was just eager, hungry to go and explore the world. Um, My 30s was very focused on mothering children while living around the world, but still, you know, just I was up to my neck in kids. I had four kids in five years, uh, no multiples, (laughs) same husband, um, across three continents. Um, My 40s was really getting moving and, like, really making some traction professionally outside the home. Um, But why do I feel so passionate around courage and bravery? Because I think the string that threads through all of my own life's experiences and what drives me um, is really overcoming the doubt and the fears in order to do, you know, whatever it is that's been there for me at the time whether that's been you know backpacking around africa or that's been having four kids or um or going off and starting a whole second career when i had four kids five and under so so courage i i i really believe i mean i think aristotle said it churchill said it you know courage is the first of all virtues because it's the one that guarantees all others and so much of my work is around helping people to be more courageous um and to back themselves more and doubt themselves less and and it's because i've had to so many times just oh, despite that loud voice in my head going who the hell do you think you are you're just this relatively poorly educated girl from the Aussie bush and uh just and just
0: with a phd
1: yeah well that's fairly that's fairly recent but yes that is um but for me, it was always overcoming. And it still is that little voice, that little voice of doubt. That's who who do you think you are and what if you fail? And um and I I honestly, as I travel around the world and met a lot of people, I see I meet so many people who I think are held back and who live in a restricted circle, um, to quote William James, of their full potential. And so I just love helping people get out of their own way. So
0: Amongst those decades, to call them as you say it, when did the light bulb come on about your mission?
1: Yeah, so I, I was living in Papua New Guinea in my 20s, in my second half of my 20s. I'd newly married. And while living there, I met some awesome people, interesting people, sometimes very troubled people too. And, um and I was struggling myself. I had had an eating disorder all through my teens. I'd had bulimia and into my 20s. And it really flared up when I got to PNG, you know, various obviously environmental triggers. It's a pretty intense place. It was pretty dangerous, still is.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: And I found myself the confidant of many people, but I also found myself needing to do a lot of, I had space to just do a lot of inner work and look at what had led me down this path of being in this fairly self-destructive relationship with food and my own body uh, at the same time, I um, I did a twelve step program while I was there, um, but it was 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 around eating versus alcohol, um, and I also then found myself in an armed robbery, and I had three miscarriages. The first at twenty weeks, um, just ten days after that armed robbery, and all of those different things, all kind of, it was this confluence that I decided to go back to university and study psychology like why do smart intelligent people act in self such self-destructive ways at times myself but also other people i was meeting so many people that were doing things that were creating suffering for themselves and so i went back um, in the wake of you know losing this my first my first baby um, to do psychology and i didn't know where it was going to lead i honestly had no idea I just felt called to go down a new path, and had had more miscarriages, but ultimately over the course of five years had had four healthy children. And um, but over the course of that period too, discovered the field of coaching, uh, which is far more suited to my personality because it's much more sort of action oriented. And I then I moved back to Australia, had a couple moves there, and then moved to the United States just after nine eleven. And it was when I was in America, living in Dallas, Texas, God bless your heart. Um, It was while living in Texas that I decided to start my own coaching business. And that was, well, my youngest is 18 years old and he was six months old. So so 18 years ago, actually next month, I, I started this kind of coaching business and that I had no idea what I was doing in terms of building a business. I just was extremely passionate about what I was doing. And courage um, came a few years later, kind of that convalesced around courage because I decided to write a book. And I was like, well, what is it that I want to, that is going to be the the core message of this book? Because there's, let's face it, a million and one books, you know, self-help books and helping people be, be, be able to enjoy their lives more and suffer less. And I just got real clarity one day meditating that, it was going to be around helping people have courage, so it was called "Find." It was called "Find Your Courage," and in a sense, it was me sort of stepping out and finding my own courage because, and defying those little voices that were saying, "Who do you think you are to write a book?"
0: Mm. <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, uh, Papua New Guinea for me, I, it, it uh, conjures images of the Second World War and the mm-hmm. battles that happen in png For having studied that. Portion. so I kind of get a, a gist of what that was like living there having a gun at your head I've never had that happen I've had a gun pointed at me uh, which is different but um, still quite quite something and and then what I love about the way you describe it is is that it's sort of a journey it, it's not like for me it was the, the moment that I I kind of retrospectively fit back the moment when the light switch happened. But it never is a, a singular moment, really. There's a sort of a, an accumulation of things. And all of a sudden, you land in Dallas, Texas. You you know say, all right, I can be a coach. I can do this. And and then courage comes into it. And you you sort of layered it into your approach yeah. and what you do.
1: Yeah. You know, I, so I moved to Texas. Um, I had an eight-week-old baby, a two-year-old and a three-year-old. And I thought I'd landed on Mars. Right. and That being it, Dallas. Or was that yeah. and three kids? <laughs> yes. You know, I was living in a suburb of Dallas and it felt a little bit like I just stepped into the set of Stepford Wives or something. Mm. And it was just so different culturally. I mean, obviously, America, Australia, England, we all speak the same language, blah, blah, blah. But I did feel like, I'd landed in a place that felt really foreign. I think if I'd moved to the D.C. area where I live now, it would have been less confronting that way because I think there's a lot more international diversity here and political diversity. and, And so I just remember thinking I just want someone to invite me over for a cup of tea or a glass of wine. And it just people invited me to Bible study and or scrapbooking which I'd never heard of until then. And I was like, oh, you know, I just felt, and actually funny enough, all my friends were Brits. Um, there was no Aussies that I got to meet, but I I literally heard a woman's accent in a grocery store and she was British. And I said, oh, you're from England? <gasps> Honestly, I felt like we were cousins. I was like, oh, like she knows how to make a pot of tea. you know. Like, mm. And we ended up becoming great friends. I think it's like we just, we both sort of had this cultural connection, even though obviously Australia and England are so different, but there was this cultural connection that, Um, but while I was there, yes, I decided, and it was about two years in before I launched that, the, that launched my little coaching business, coaching practice to call it that. I didn't ever think of it as a business. I was just doing what I felt passionate about. And, you know, it took a long while for it to take off and, you know, make, make money. But I, I was never, I was never focused on optimizing income as much as I was about optimizing impact, um, and it's oh, very much grown organically over what 18 years and of course now I, I mean i've written five books and i do a lot of speaking and a lot less coaching um but always sort of moving towards what i i felt was interesting and gave me energy and not doing the things that didn't give me energy which probably meant i missed out on doing some things that commercially might have been really smart
0: <laughs> right this is that that idea of saying no to things
1: yeah It's
0: like when you're starting, of course, as an entrepreneur, it's like, yes, of course I can do that. So um, I I wanted to ask you about book writing um, for having written a few books myself. What have you learned about book writing um, for having done these five bestsellers?
1: I've learned just start. (laughs) Just start because the actual process of writing gives clarity and maybe you decide to change what you're saying because of the actual writing. Um, but definitely don't wait until you are 100% sure you know what you're doing and don't overwork your, your layout or your structure before you start. Um, I've and, and I think for me, so I, I grew up, I went to a little school in rural Victoria, Australia, where I was the only kid in my grade all the way through primary school. And there was one teacher of the entire school. So, you know, he was teaching five-year-olds and he was teaching 12, 13-year-olds. And we were, you know, so it wasn't like my, my early literary education was particularly strong. <laughs> um, and then I went to a regional high school and, again, you know, a lot of kids, it was sort of the goal was can they be literate when you finish. So I certainly... And I never studied English. I mean, I did a business degree at university. Um, I did a marketing degree. My dad thought it quit me to work in a market, couldn't understand why you needed three years for that. But um, but I, I certainly was very aware of what I didn't um, know and the education I hadn't had. And I, I didn't feel, you know, I, I listened to some people like J.K. Rowling or Elizabeth Gilbert, and they're just, they're just born to write. They just love writing. I never had that. I just felt my passion was around my message and what I wanted to say versus my ability to say it. And so, you know, it was, I think, um, I'm trying to remember her name. She wrote um, Bird by Bird uh, and, and, and in Lamont, she said, you know, just give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. And that would be my biggest, my biggest advice to anyone. Just give yourself permission to write. A shitty first draft and maybe your second will be slightly less shitty and by your third or fourth it will be okay um and i had to just let go any idea that i was going to write something that was ever going to be you know some sort of masterpiece but just write it and not just i wanted to avoid one day looking back and wondering what if what if i'd tried
0: well it seems margie that that is a little bit your general message which is just do it yeah
1: yeah it is it is and it's funny because that book was called find your courage but it was me finding my own courage to risk writing a really crappy book and you know I can look back on that book which is now in seven languages I should have had. <laughs> I mean I've never sold a million copies I am not, but I it has been reprinted in multiple languages because the message the message in it is one that is so universal and timeless and so many need to hear and Uh, and I think I've become a much better writer. My most recent book, You've Got This, is is definitely a better written book but even that book i could pick up and look at any page i reckon and i could say oh i could have worded that sentence better i could have made that stronger because i think we're always in a process of refining and it's never going to be well certainly not for me i don't think anything i've ever written i could look at it and go now that is perfection absolutely not i always go oh i reckon that could be better mm. um and I just, yes, I recently updated Stop Playing Safe, which I, I, I wrote a decade ago, and I, I rewrote it for the context of this pandemic time. We've just, we're still weathering. And, you know, I ultimately rewrote the book because my writing over the last decade has just got better and stronger and my voice has become more authentic and more me. And, um, and so, yes, to anyone who's thinking about it, I would say, yeah, don't wait until you know what you're doing. Just start.
0: So you you said something which struck me, I I love picking up, maybe out of context, because I'm kind of a decontextualizer at times, which is that, um, just do it, but then also, just stop it. Uh, And by which I mean, stop, because you've got to at one point, just let it go, even if it's not perfect, you know, otherwise, you never finish the bugger.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Press, pressing send on emails saying, yeah, I'm giving the final OK for that to go to print. There's always like, oh, thank God. Like I just need like it's almost and then, you know, sure enough, anything you afterwards I look at it and go, oh, damn, I should have changed that or how did I miss that? But mm there comes a point where I'm like, I've just got to just move on. <laughs> you, know? you can't spend your life being pregnant. You've just got to give birth to this thing. <laughs> um, and I think the writing is like this whole gestation period. And then you've yeah. just got to say, okay, let's just get it out in the world. And I know uh, that I'm going to see something. And but, um, but I would also say, don't get pulled into comparisons. If I sat there and going, I have to write like, one of the greats, then I would never write. I would never write because I'd spend my life in writing classes. Um, And I meet people who do spend they like, oh, I'm going to do a a writing course and another course. I'm not saying you shouldn't do a course. But there comes a point where like, just stop doing courses and just write. Um, And you nothing you nothing. There's no better way to get better at any craft than actually doing it.
0: So uh, that brings up, so, you know, like this idea of I need to go to business school to become a better leader or maybe earn a better salary. Well, is that really true? And and so maybe a little bit incisive, my question, but why did you need feel the need to get a PhD?
1: Ah, oh, great question. Um, I didn't feel the need to get a PhD. <laughs> I actually had no need to get a PhD. Um, I moved to Singapore. So four years ago, Next month, next week, actually, um, I, I had been, I'd been living in the U.S., moved back to Australia. My husband's former company said, oh, we will 100% be moving you back to the U.S. So we sent two kids to boarding school in America because we were following within 12 months. And then his company, who shall not be named, but I don't have anything good to say about them, um, said, oh, we've changed our mind. We want you to go to Singapore. And I was. Oh, bloody hell. Bloody hell is putting it gently. I was I can't even overstate, you know, I just can't even overstate how upset I was about that because I had kids in the US and Singapore is actually one of the one place on the planet that's actually further from the US. And so we moved to Singapore and a lot of people there have live in helpers and i had done the hard yards with kids and I was like, I'm oh getting it. I'm getting a, a live in helper. And I realized that my two boys, I went there with them. They left for school at 6.30 in the morning. Didn't get home till seven at night. And I had a a live-in helper who did everything. And while I traveled a lot with work, um, you know, doing a lot of keynote speaking, I I realized, you know, I've got like 20 freaking hours in the week that I didn't have before, if not more. and I went out for coffee with some woman I met who I never met again. And she said, well, have you considered doing a PhD? And I said, I don't even have a master's. Like I'd never even got a, like I got an undergrad, I got a bachelor's degree when I was 20, I finished when I was 21. And now I'm, you know, I'm, I was in my, well, in my forties. And she said, oh, there's this university where if you've got, you know, years, decades experience, they'll, they, they accept people. And so I literally went back home that afternoon, signed up, did an interview and next thing you know, I was in a, PhD program and me being me, I just dived in and just got right into it, even though I was, you know, not that you, not that grades matter in PhD, but I'm sure I was, would not have graduated with, you know, I, I didn't try and do it perfectly. I just dived in. I was really, I knew what I was interested in studying, which was around gender, different gender power and leadership. and. um and so, yeah, I got my masters on the way to the PhD, and got it all done in three and a half years, um, which most people don't do. But it was really a way of going, you know, what that would be a useful thing to do with all the extra time I have on my hands, versus I need to prove to the world that I'm smart or something. <laughs>
0: right. Well, I, 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 I mean, I resonate with that um, as I've the idea of of exploring, researching, learning and doing something. And the fact that it ends up with a doctorate seems interesting to me.
2: Hi, my name is Sarah. And I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving,
0: So women's studies is something, as I mentioned to you before, we started to hit record button. It's something that um, I I studied. And I feel like, obviously, since my time in the 1980s, the, the whole subject has moved on. I mean, it's no longer women's studies, it's gender studies. And... And yet I feel like there's some immutables. And and, and so I'm, I might be considered rear guard at this point, but somehow I have this generalization that, and, and, and I please don't take it wrong, that women um, understand imperfection better than men.
1: I, I, believe that women's relationship with perfection is more embroiled in gender norms and pressures than men's. My experience is that women wrangle far more often with the need to feel like they have to be perfect and struggle more with just lowering the bar. I feel men are far better at going, you know, you know, this is this is this is good. Let's move on. Um and maybe that's my experience in the corporate realm. I do a lot of work with companies, but men will put their hand up and go for a job when they're not quite sure if they've got even tick three of the 10 boxes, but they'll go, ah, look, I'll, I'll figure it out. And 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 research shows that men tend to judge themselves less harshly uh, when they do mess up <laughs> and women tend to be far tougher on themselves and much more inclined to focus in on what they didn't totally nail or where they're not a complete master and so I think there are absolutely gender differences between um, obviously between men and women when it comes to perfection but I I, I think that um, I know myself I think I've struggled more with not doing things brilliantly than my husband does. And I think and that I the see interest it, I think that play yeah, out a lot.
0: The inter I saw so I I have you know multiple times said the same story of how um, all right, so who can do this? And and the the five men in the room raise up their hand. Of course I can. I oh I can do it. Your bravado, which you mentioned multiple times in your book. And, and, and no women, the five women, none of the five women raise up their hands. And then one of the men says, look around, but hey, didn't, to one of the women, didn't you do this before? I've done it five times, but um, you know, I, I could still do better.
1: Or I've never and, and, done it in this context. <laughs> right, for
0: example, whatever, but there's this like justification. So, and, the, and the fact is in the professional world, that's the way it rolls. And I think the paradigm is, is uh, complicated. And then, of course, there's also intra or inter-women, how they, they manage each other and so on and so forth. Yet, I feel, because what's important actually is the real world. That is, you know, how we live our lives, a part of which is how we work and earn our living. And it's in that context that I subscribe to the idea that women have a better relationship with imperfection than men do because the idea of vulnerability about which you talk which is the mm-hmm. thing that strong men need to get a grip on is is actually a life story not a work story
1: mm. yeah absolutely i mean there's there's so many terms that we're familiar with now that i'd never heard of 10 years ago and whether it's toxic masculinity or the man box uh all of these terms that have been coined as we become more aware of how much it's not just women who are stifled by gender norms. Men are stifled by gender norms too. And I strongly um, oppose railing at men. <laughs> I, yeah. I meet some women who do, you know, they're just trying to keep us down, et cetera, because I know lots of great men and they're shaped by their environment, just as we women are shaped by our environment and history and how we were parented, etc. And so I, I absolutely think many men really, the absolute shame trigger for men is around appearing weak, um you know they they feel the need to be strong and they have to be strong and women sometimes put a lot of pressure on men to be strong too in fact a lot of men you know the research shows you know like the last person they're 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 willing to be vulnerable with can be their wife hmm. because they feel they have to be strong for their wife um or, or and um and i think that's a, a huge issue and it's something that i think causes enormous suffering for men but of course that many have a difficult time expressing their emotions and they get pushed down and you know put on there and i mean obviously you're british you think culturally you know we're,
0: we're not here lip, to be
1: damn it. yep stiff up a lip and 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 you know and obviously i grew up in australia and there's that's very prevalent there too sure. um and and we and i think so And I I think, you know, men and women are just naturally different. I think how we process emotions is just naturally different. And that's not a bad thing. It's just different. And I think we need both men and women to, I mean, we're at our best diversity as always. The best is always comes from diversity. And, uh, but I think, it's so important to create environments where men can be authentic and real and expressive and not feel that they have to put on a mask of toughness um, for their own sake. And for actually everyone, the lives that they impact.
0: So I have a little story. Um, when I was, uh, I, I, I remember running the company and I had to do a, a press conference and there were 60 people and invited all the la dars, all the big big titles. And for whatever reason, with all the stress that was involved, I actually broke down and started to cry in front of everybody almost at the beginning of the event. And this had never happened. I, goodly gosh. I, so I was all over the, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. And, and I kind of expected everybody to get up and leave at that point. I was like, this is just not happening. This is, Oh my gosh! And um, and at the end of the event, what was fairly illuminating for me was actually some people stayed. There were some people clapping to get me back in, and you know, as one does, because actually the people have empathy and they understand that there are stresses. And and the most important person in the room, as far as I was concerned for the event, uh, came up to me and said, "May I may I hug you?" And I said, "Oh my gosh, this is pretty cool." And, and so what I realized was that they didn't think less of me for crying. Somehow they felt more connected to me because it showed that I wasn't some sort of, you know, superficial, everything's perfect, rah-rah leader. I, I was able, I didn't, I wasn't able, I just did, you know, but, um, the 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 point that I wanted to get to was this, um, and it's you know, somehow it's usually easier when a woman says it, embracing our differences. Yet I feel like it's okay only to talk about our differences if they're better. Hmm. So it's you know diversity we talk about that, and and you know you bring on a team of diversity, but actually I feel like we we're, we're usually constrained especially when you're in a position of power to mention Mm -hmm. the positives of the diverse or the differences that we have rather than identify or accept somehow that we have differences where sometimes not always better. And sometimes that strength of courage that you mentioned sometimes is necessary. The vulnerability sometimes is necessary. Emotions. You can cry sometimes, but not all the time.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, none of us are strong at everything. Oh, certainly not strong at everything all the time. And and I I would say yes to your point. It's not always better. It's just different. So I am not great with details. I don't like details. I'm not great with details. I'm not into process and all of that. And other people are. And we need people who are really into details. Because I just love being at the big picture, and that's awesome. And I bring something to the table. But goodness knows, if everyone was like me, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I'm not. You know, I'm not someone highly analytical. It's going to sit there studying numbers. You know, I just think of so many things I'm not good at, and other people are great at. And I love when I meet people who love doing things that I couldn't. I couldn't think of anything worse than doing. You know, like I'm like I am so glad that you love coding or whatever (laughs) not my gig um and and likewise it's funny i have a friend she's a coach and i run i have been running and um i've had a bit of a sabbatical over the uh pandemic uh live brave women's weekends and um i have a friend who's a coach and she came and she said let me just support you at your weekend i said fantastic great And at the end of it, she goes, I just love that you just love being at the front of a room and facilitating a big group of women for a weekend. She said, but I couldn't think of anything worse, but I would just love to work one-on-one with women. I'm like, yeah, great, because I couldn't think of anything worse than just being one-on-one all the time, occasionally, but not all the time. So I just think how wonderful that we have people who are different than us and um, what a gift that is versus making those comparisons and I'm sure you've heard that phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. I also think it's such an impediment to progress to ourselves, our own and collectively. Just avoid it. Yeah. So um, in the realm of, let's say,
0: this idea of um, accepting diversity and different opinions, it was funny that when I studied women's studies at Yale, we studied Black history, we studied gays, we studied all versions of different diversity under the banner of women's studies. Had it been called male studies, it would have been called history, English. And somehow I feel like my narrative, the little story in Minter's mind is that women embrace this diversity and I feel, and and I certainly don't want to make it like it's equal to, this notion of also accepting that we're different and our imperfections that come with it, because by golly, we're not perfect. We do have strengths and within our differences, we also have lesser strengths or weaknesses to call them by another word.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, mean, we know that. I mean, there's obviously the traditional um, gender traits, feminine leadership traits, behavioral traits, Male behavioral traits, men, you know, which of course are always generalization. Women are more communal, men are more competitive, blah, blah, blah. You know, we've we've heard all of that. And and I think again, it's not, it's not better than, worse than, it's just different too. And to me, the empowerment of women and the elevation of women, and I feel really strongly about empowering a lot of my work around empowering more women. Um, to sit at decision-making tables and to get out of their own way. But it's not so that men can be more powerful than women, can be more powerful than men. It's actually that we can be equal players and equal partners. And and I mean, and that's obviously there's many different types of diversity. I'm talking about gender diversity. There's sure. many different types of diversity. But, um, and I think that's what makes a great, partnership when people like, what do I bring to the table? Well, let's celebrate what you bring. Let's figure out how to create as much synergy here as we can and to serve everybody. Mm,
0: totally. So uh, in the last uh, section, I, I would like to talk a lot about fear. Uh, you write a lot about it. And, um, and so obviously I've, I've studied a bit about it and I've seen all the different ways we characterize fear. Uh, but I was wondering, in the ways that we characterize fear of abandonment, of humiliation, or whatever it is, death, are there different ways that, as men and women, we approach fear? Uh, is there study, Is there some research that shows that we actually our brains are wired towards fear in different ways?
1: Is there? Is there some? Can you give us a little bit of understanding of that? Yeah. No. So. I mean, obviously, everyone, no one is immune to fear. Fear serves a really important role, but in how we process our perception, so fear is really it comes from our our perception of perceived danger or threat to our well being or the well being of those around us, and so how we interpret and process that differs across gender and in our decision making processes. So women tend to be more considered and more cautious of taking risks where they could risk putting something, putting well-being, putting reputation, putting money um, on the line. Men are more willing, generally, to take risks. And we we see that in, I mean, obviously, guys tend to love more um, adrenaline-fueling activities than women. And part of that is because they just, there's a desire for just the adrenaline rush of going fast in fast cars, you know, or going skydiving or whatever. But part of it is in the calculation. Um, so we well, well, what's the what's the risk versus the benefit? Men are going to go, well, that's worth it. I know there's a risk I might you know die jumping out of a plane, but man, it is gonna be so much fun. I'm gonna love it. Whereas women might go, you know what? You know what? It could be fun, but it's not that much fun. I'm not willing to risk it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a difference in the in that perception of the the ratio of, of risk to benefit to payoff but also women tend to be more considered decision makers so they tend to hold back not dive in as quickly um that can work both ways sure at times men can, that bravado isn't all bad You know, there's good things can happen from someone saying, what the hell, I'm taking the leap, diving in, let's just figure this out as we go and, you know, learn to fly the plane as we build it. And, and women obviously are more likely to say, you know what, why don't we just step back and think this through a little bit more. And so there's a balance there.
0: I have to use a single word to describe the difference. And that is the level of responsibility. I feel like women look at a broader picture and I'm responsible for a family and therefore I can't jump out of this airplane. It's the more responsible thing to do.
1: It's I, I would, I would say yes, but I would also push back yes and say for men, there is, there can be when it comes to say jumping out of an airplane or going hand gliding or something. the the perceived reward from that is just much, much higher. Women just right. have less desire to jump out of an airplane. Like, just, just don't want to do it as much. Now, I mean, obviously, that is a generalisation. I've jumped yes. out of it. By the way, I've jumped out of an airplane. You've so, climbed
0: Kilimanjaro. So you've yeah, done so crazy I've done, done
1: these things. I've climbed Kilimanjaro. I've climbed numerous mountains. And I've done lots of things that plenty of people might say are risky. But, um, Me included, I have less- by the less. <laughs> But I have less appetite for it than I think overall than than some men, and that I just think that's how our brains are wired. Uh, And when it comes to responsibility, you know, I'm always very hesitant to kind of say, "Wow, women are more responsible than men." Uh, Maybe we're sometimes more cautious and timid too. (laughs) Well, you do Um, say
0: you do say in your book, you know, that or at least you quote somebody else saying. I and I don't I paraphrase but basically you know what we need to do is educate women girls
1: Yes I absolutely think we have to embolden women to be braver and to take risks and and because women tend to one overestimate the risks underestimate themselves more like their ability sure. to handle sure. risks and and so empowering women to go you know what you can try this and if it doesn't work out you will figure it out men have generally more confidence in their ability to figure it out. And if you look at the research around how we raise kids, you know, on a playground, parents are more likely if there's monkey bars, they're more likely to say to their little four year old, "Oh, be careful, but let me give you a leg up. But be careful, but I'll give you a leg up and say to their daughter, oh, it's a bit dangerous. Why don't you go and play over there on that, you know? swing um so we parent differently when it comes to encouraging risk-taking behavior uh likewise it's like we treat our daughter's bones as though they're more fragile than our boy's bones
0: (laughs) well i mean then inculcated or not should we be doing the same to both because i mean at some level if little jimmy is a go-getter happy to jump off cliffs into water hopefully um Oh, Jimmy, you know, hold back. And uh, Jemima, well, go for it. Or should we treat them the same way?
1: Honestly, every child is different. I have four kids, right? And right. Um, some of them I would, I mean, none of are they're, they're all extroverts. But hmm. one of them in particular is like a little mini Bear Grylls meets Richard Branson sort of just fearless and at times i've had to just say let's just stop and think through here you know and he's he's 18 now so he's he's not he's not stupid Whereas some of the others I've had to kind of push and say, why don't you try skydiving? And, uh, and they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, no, it'd be really good for you. And they've gone and done it, but they've needed the push. The other one's like, oh, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think how we parent our kids, regardless of gender, has to be different because our kids are different. And I don't think a, a one a blanket. There's no one size fits all. I absolutely feel passionately around um, teaching our kids to be to be smart about taking risks, and to be embracing of the risk of failure and to say, hey, try out for it. Well, I don't know if I'm going to make the top team. Just try out for the top team. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? You don't get in. You make the B team. Or the worst, maybe C team. Or you don't make any team. But at least you've tried. And that building that resilience. You are not defined by your results. And I see way too many parents, like you can tell this is a hot topic, who, um, you know, are so worried about their kids' Feeling disappointed or rejected, and then going in and complaining when they don't make the top team. And I'm like, not everyone can win. Kids need to learn. The best thing we can do for our kids is teaching them how to handle failure.
0: Yeah, I. I, um, So I, when I look at fear, there's always the fear of failure and and of of, of humiliation, or so and so forth. I, I I tend to put above all our fear of death as a, a uniting concept that everybody has to face and and i feel like that is a a true difficulty and and i would love for you to tell me how this might have been part of the rewriting of um, stop the fear for what's it called sorry you yeah,
1: my, my this book stop playing safe stop playing um, safe
0: how how, that, well, how how the just let me finish how the the idea of the fear of death pandemic Included and a lesser idea of educating around resilience and failing has contributed, or was that part of that book? Because I didn't get to read that one.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So this pandemic has magnified our sensitivity to perceive danger to our physical well-being from a virus, right? You know, like for legitimate reasons because many people have died. So it's not to deny legitimate risks and legitimate dangers, but what our brains tend to do is we tend to then project that onto everything and people have become just hyper-cautious. Many people, not all people, but fear is a very contagious emotion and left unchecked, it can overtake our thinking and undermine our decision-making. And I believe that there are people who live their lives constantly in fear. Everything is to be feared. Every risk is to be avoided and not all risks are created equal. And I have seen people, um, by the way, I should just mention, like my husband got COVID, my kids have had COVID. My husband was actually hospitalised with COVID. I was living in Singapore at the time March last year. Um, he's made 100% recovery. But, you know, the, there's a lot of fear-mongering that has also gone on. Mm. And I, well, it's not that we should be completely, it could be reckless or stupid. I think we have to be careful not to become so risk-averse, not to be living so safely that we miss out on life itself, and and i i see people pre-pandemic who lived so anxiously, so timidly, so safely that i was like what your life is just so vanilla it's so living in such a small little circle of what's comfortable and familiar that you that you're missing out on actually tasting and diving deep into what life's about to trying new things, going new places, meeting new people. It's the same it's the same because everything's scary. And so it's why I, I truly believe that risk risk is part and parcel. We need to learn how to take risks. And I, I can't recall who said it, but, you know, well, actually maybe it was Helen Keller that, you know, security is superstition. And,
2: mm.
1: and when we just try and avoid things that make us feel insecure, we ultimately become less secure. That only by willing, being willing to go out there and take risks and expose ourselves to the things we fear Can we ultimately build our capacity and our sense of security in our lives? Now, that's not to say doing stupid things, but it is to say, don't try and avoid all risks. You know, don't try and risk rejection. Don't try and risk, you know, the chance that you might end up in a place that you don't like. Go out there. I mean, I remember backpacking around the world for a year as a 21-year-old and landing in numerous places that I you know, I'd go. All right. Well, I got out of the train in the wrong place in Manhattan, and I ended up in Harlem, and whatever. So I got back on the train and went back a few stops. And you know, some people might had someone say to me, "Oh, that was such a ridiculously dangerous thing for you to go traveling around on your own." I'm like, "Yeah, but I learned a lot, and I actually never found I, I not, nothing bad actually happened." <laughs> um, well,
0: and I mean, and and maybe it could have. But that's could that's also life. And do you feel like there's a a a um a risk management muscle that for having yeah, done is. so many things, you've sort of accumulated some not sort of thicker skin, but a thicker risk management component?
1: Uh, yes. I think my ability to just to discern risk. So there's what's the chance of it happening and how and what are the stakes if it did? And so, you know, if something is really low probability, but if that thing happened, it would just be just devastating. Well, I don't want to risk it. But if the chance of it happening and if it did happen, it's like, oh, it's, it's really not massive. Well, you know what? Give it a go. You know, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? It's not the worst thing that could happen is not that bad. You got up on stage and gave a speech and, you know, it didn't land so great you didn't die the the world you didn't fall you know the ground didn't open up beneath you and sometimes people like people you said fear death fear of public speaking right. like you're not going to die
0: <laughs> well this so that's an interesting lever the the probability of it happening and the the intensity of the consequence and as i as i said before i feel like the certainly i i believe that the fear of death is the one above all because it sounds like the biggest consequence there could be Actually, but I also no.
1: think what we what we often do, and this is part of it, is we don't get afraid of what will happen if I don't do it. And right. so writing that first book, I was really afraid. I was going to completely humiliate myself if this book came out and people said it was terrible. In fact, I had a nightmare just before it came out and my face was on the front page of the New York Times and it was the byline world's worst author. And let's face it. That was never going to happen. I mean, that would have been great publicity, but that that was never going to happen. But what I, what I, I think we often do is we discount the cost of inaction. The, we discount the cost of caution and playing safe. And it's why at the end of life, people regret far more the risks that they didn't take because fear of what might happen sat in the driver's seat. And so don't just ask yourself, well, what is it that might happen if I do do this? Ask yourself, how will I feel one year, five years, 10 years from now if I don't do it? If I don't invite this person out, go on the date, change jobs, um, put myself out there. And we tend to, we're really good at imagining how we'll feel a day, a week from now if we try and we fail, but we're usually pretty poor at putting ourselves in the shoes of the future us And asking, well, how will I feel 10 years from now if I don't? So last question for you, Margie. I have tended
0: to focus on who we want to be as a a guiding principle, a North Star. It feels like you focus more on what we should do. How does that break down in Margie's head?
1: No, I actually agree. I think it's about who who do you want to be and then what do you need to do to become that person? So to me, it really does start with who do you want to be? Um, and I think of a funny quote by Lily Tomlin. She said, I always wanted to be somebody. I should have been more specific. And I, I often say to people, who do you want to be in the world? And who do you want to be for the people you care about? You know, what do you want to make? You know, Gandhi said, my life is my message. You know, who do you want to be in this one and only precious adventure that sometimes messy we call life? And then what do you need to do to be that? And and the answer to that is you will always need to be brave. Whoever you want to be, you need to be brave.
0: I love it. I love the way, I love the Lily Tomlin quote. I will have to borrow that one. As I feel like so many people think they know who they are, but they don't actually have a precise version of it. And and so we all want to be happy, wealthy, you know, healthy, but that's just not good enough. It's not precise enough. And and you don't you end up being frustrated because you want to be like everybody else ultimately, as opposed to be the best version of you fabulous Margie good lore I have um, I, I wrote down actually 20 other questions didn't even bloody get to them as I expected um Margie so you've um, you just uh, you got your second edition uh, of, of a book you wrote 10 years ago tell us how people can find you your books and any other action you'd like people who are listening to to
2: take.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, honestly, the best place is to go over to my website, com, and you'll find links to buy all my books on my website. But they're all anywhere you buy books, you know, Amazon, anywhere, um, you can buy all of my books there. Um, I also invite people to sign up for my Live Bravely newsletter and to connect with me on wherever they are on social media, um, LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or wherever, but um, I'm all just under my name, Margie Worrell.
0: Lovely. And uh, probably in multiple languages, all the books. So beautiful. Thank you so much, Maggie, for coming on the show and, and exchanging with me. Um, hopefully one day we'll have a chance to uh, cheers some kind of beer and, and uh, continue the conversation.
1: That would be awesome. Be well.